Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, Today, we are talking about President Biden's announcement of his decision to pull American troops out of Afghanistan. Uh, It's a significant decision for the United States, but also critical to remember that the United States was never in this conflict alone. Uh, Allies have supported American forces since Article 5 was first invoked by NATO in 2001. And that means then that foreign troops under NATO command will now withdraw as well, which raises a series of questions for the transatlantic allies. Uh, Questions like how the United States and Europe are gonna look to manage the withdrawal and how transatlantic partners can work together to build a long-term framework for peace and security in Afghanistan. Uh, These are obviously hard, complicated, complex questions. And so we are very thankful that we have two phenomenal, seasoned, outstanding guests with us today um, to talk through all of these issues. I'm extremely excited to welcome um, Rector Federica Mogherini and CNIS's own Lisa Curtis. Um, Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. I always like to give a small bit of background for our listeners. Um, So Rector Mogherini is clearly the Rector of the College of Europe. Uh, She previously served as High Representative of the European Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy and Vice President of the European Commission from 2014 to 2019, where she was Europe's top diplomat responsible for coordinating the foreign policy among Europe's, uh, the EU's 28 countries. And Lisa Curtis is a Senior Fellow and Director of the Indo-Pacific Program at the Center for New American Security. And she most recently served as Deputy Assistant to the President and NSC Senior Director for South and Central Asia from 2017 to 2021. And she also served at my alma mater as an analyst at CIA, um, but also at the State Department in Capitol Hill. So as I said, welcome to you both. And I wanted to, before we kind of dive into where we go from here, maybe just to rewind a little bit, give a little context to our conversation. So Lisa, maybe I can start with you and ask you to talk a little bit about where the policy discussions were, say in summer and fall of 2020. So under the Trump administration, can you describe a little bit about what those deliberations were like and where things were on uh, our policy towards Afghanistan, and maybe you know whether or not you think that constrained or shaped in any meaningful way uh, the decision that we arrived at today. Well, thank you, Andrea. Uh, I think it's important to remember that the U.S. had been leading a peace process uh, since the fall of 2019 or 2018, really. Um, and it started in earnest in the spring of, of 2019. Uh, the U.S. had been negotiating with the Taliban, had com- uh, completed an agreement, the Doha Agreement, in February 2020, uh, in which the U.S. had agreed to fully withdraw U.S. forces by May 2014, so long as the Taliban uh, broke links to al-Qaeda uh, and had begun a peace process with the Afghan government. Uh, there were other parts of that agreement. Uh, the U.S. had uh, promised to use its influence with the Afghan government uh, to have them release 5,000 Taliban prisoners, which happened uh, by September of 2020. Um, and so the, the talks between uh, the Afghan government, the Taliban, 
had begun, but they were very painstakingly slow and really had not achieved much um, by the end of 2020. Now, at the same time, you had President Trump uh, very eager to withdraw U.S. forces from Afghanistan, which put a lot of pressure on the peace talks. And uh, so the, the U.S. negotiator uh, was, was trying to um, keep the peace process on the rails, keep it going. But, you know, having that uh, in the background that the U.S. was going to be withdrawing forces um, decreased his leverage quite a bit with the Taliban. So really, by January 2021, when uh, the Biden administration took over, uh, the, the peace talks were really starting to go downhill. Um, and at the same time, you have this looming May 2021 deadline for all U.S. troops to be withdrawn, or they would be at risk of um, the Taliban resuming attacks on U.S. forces. So it re really was a difficult position for the Biden administration. And uh, I think there, there was a, a review of the situation, but when it came down to it, uh, President Biden uh, decided that U.S. troops have been in Afghanistan for 20 years, and he was not willing to, to keep them committed, even though uh, the peace process was clearly not going well, and even though Taliban attacks had increased, and uh, it looks like a, a pretty risky decision to bring down U.S. troops to zero, and particularly at a time when NATO was supportive of keeping a certain level of forces there. Um, so it's it's a huge risk. And I think the, the U.S. Uh, really faces a, a quite um, dire situation moving forward. Okay, so before we jump in, maybe we can talk through some of those risks and maybe look at what where where things might go um, after the U.S. and NATO forces draw down. But I want to turn to you, Federica, as, as Lisa mentioned, and as I said in my introduction, this was not just an American war, that Europeans were with us, you know, 7,000 or so of them by our side. And, you know, Jim and I have talked a lot about how Europeans have spent a lot of their own blood and treasure in Afghanistan as well. But can you give listeners just a little bit of context of what Europe's role and posture was in Afghanistan? And, and maybe how Europeans thought about the conflict there and Europe's role, and maybe how that has ebbed and flowed and changed over time. Thank you, Andrea, for the, uh, for the uh, question, and thanks to Lisa for the excellent uh, uh, framework she's offered us to start with. Uh, you know, indeed, we were together in this. Uh, we were together in Afghanistan. We still are. Uh, you have uh, uh, European troops uh, of NATO allies that are also European Union member states that have been present there since the beginning. Uh, you know that Europeans are, uh, there is this stereotype that we come from uh, Venice and the Americans come from Mars. So we always advocate uh, in favor of non-military solutions. In this case, I would say that Europeans were eager to stay uh, even at a minimum level of, uh, of presence of forces, um, as long as uh, an achievement uh, uh, was reached uh, uh, at the table of negotiations in Doha. Uh, so Europeans were insisting now to have more uh, of a condition-based calendar more than, than uh, calendar-based uh, withdrawal, um, exactly to put more pressure on the negotiations. Uh, but it's true, uh, it has been for Europeans uh, a long, uh, probably the longest uh, military um, operation. Most of them have been involved in, uh, in the military history. And uh, uh, 
uh, for sure a heavy one. Uh, so um, there has been also among public opinions in Europe, the wish to see groups uh, of European countries withdrawing from Afghanistan. Uh, but in general terms, uh, I would say that uh, Europe uh, has always been extremely careful uh, in avoiding that uh, any uh, military withdrawal would uh, determine a loss in terms of the achievements and uh, the gains that have been uh, built in these 20 years, especially in terms of human rights, uh, rights of women and girls, education, the opening up of the country and the changes in the society that are really impressive. There is now a new generation of Afghan women and girls that have um, have a profile and the power and an energy that is, uh, I think, is the better guarantee we have for the future. But in general terms, Europeans have uh, uh, not only been present militarily uh, through, through NATO uh, in Afghanistan, but they've also worked uh, a lot over these 20 years on, um, uh, on uh, financing development of the country, uh, infrastructures, uh, humanitarian aid, uh, all kinds of infrastructures from uh, transports to uh, the, the, the health system. Uh, and also working a lot on the training of the civilian uh, security forces, police, especially women uh, police, uh, the judiciary, the rule of law system. So Europeans, apart from being present militarily through NATO, have always been a lot engaged in, in the build-up of the institutional setup of the country uh, and the capacities of, of Afghanistan uh, to, uh, to shape a different future. Um, and that part will probably be very precious now, uh, in order to, to try and uh, ensure the resilience of the country, uh, as uh, um, including on the security level, uh, as they, the troops withdraw. Uh, and, and the third pillar on which the Europeans have always been very much engaged has been the political one, the negotiations, uh, including in this last couple of years. Uh, obviously, it was the US um, negotiating directly with the Taliban, with little involvement of the Europeans in this respect. Um, it was also... Uh, the way in which the Trump administration was acting uh, on other fights, but Europeans have always kept a, a parallel track in support of the U.S. negotiations, mainly with the Afghan government, with the Afghan civil society, with the neighbors of the uh, of the country. Europeans are the only ones that have open channels and relatively good relations with all the neighbors of Afghanistan, from Iran to China and, and the Central Asian countries, Pakistan. So there is leverage that can be used also in this phase. Thank you so much of both of you. Those uh, interventions are uh, were so important as we all are grappling with this. As certainly in European capitals, uh, you know, nations are are trying to figure out. So what do we do now? Where where do we go from here? Because uh, we don't want to see a collapse over the next six months or a year. That I mean, then the worst case scenario. Um, uh, you know, just could be uh, have a be bleak, not just for the Afghan people, but for Europe as well as refugees come in and for the United States. Uh, it's just a, it's a horrible future that could be out there. Um, and so given that, what do you think the EU and European nations would be willing to do uh, to, to try to stem that kind of thing from happening? I mean, obviously, there's a military side of it. You know, pushing back on the Taliban, um, but 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 you know that's not going to be in the cards, certainly not in the short term. But but in the short term, do you think the European Union would be able to fashion a program uh, to go in there and really redouble its efforts to try to strengthen as best as possible civil society, the uh, the government, you know, Ashraf Ghani uh, or whatever comes, uh, but that central government in Kabul um, and 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 individual European nations too. 
Um, do you think there there could be a, a coalition of the willing, if you will, of nations to uh, to go in and offer some other kinds of help, maybe in conjunction with NATO as well? Uh, you know, the NATO trust funds have been used to help out in various ways. So I think there's things we can do if we act together. And uh, and I think the, the United States is going to have to really lead that effort. But as someone who's who's who has tried to organize the EU to do things or individual European nations to help out. What do you think is the R of the possible, at least in the short to medium term? I think for sure the European Union has a role to play to, first of all, continue what it has always been doing, uh, delivering assistance, support, uh, all, all that falls in the civilian part of, of the support. Uh, that is purely uh, traditionally the European approach to conflicts and crisis. But let me say, so this is something the European Union has always been doing, member states of the European Union have always been doing, and I'm sure that they will continue to do it and even redouble efforts and, and hopefully also um, financial efforts uh, to make sure that uh, the withdrawal of troops doesn't, uh, doesn't translate into a withdrawal of support to the Afghan people. That is the key element. But I have also to say that uh, the security on the ground will be an issue for all Europeans and all Americans probably, uh, as of September. Uh, I think of our embassies, I think of the European Union buildings, I think of the uh, people that go on the ground, uh, you know, for, for delivering assistance, for running projects on the ground, you have to have the capacity to ensure the security of your staff, security of the people you work with, they, you mentioned civil society, women, um, all the work you do with them uh, can be now exposed. The European Union has experience in some other countries, uh, how risky it can be, to work with uh, local actors if you cannot guarantee security on the ground. So I think that a cooperation with NATO uh, would be still important. Uh, I think most than, uh, more than anything else, uh, we will need to make sure that the support to the Afghan um, forces, the security forces, uh, will be kept and increased uh, in different manners. Um, this is something we will have to, uh, to, to think of, being creative, but I think it's going to be key uh, to make sure that the basic element of security on the ground is kept uh, for all the rest to happen. Uh, because otherwise the risk is that you can pour money into that, but you do not have the capacity to go around in the country to move, to, to protect your people. Uh, we've seen it in, in the Sahel, we've seen it in the Horn of Africa, we've seen it in, in many different places. A minimum of security on the ground is needed also to do development and humanitarian. Right. Lisa, I, I want to come back to that question for the for the U.S. too, and kind of what your views are. But before we do that, maybe just to take one intermediary step and even ask you, you know, putting on your CIA analyst hat for a minute. So the president would be weighing his options about what to do in Afghanistan, and you mentioned risks before. You know, if you were laying out for the president, and as I'm sure you did for the previous administration, what are some of the risks that concern you most about the U.S. withdrawal? What do you think we, and I guess maybe not necessarily worst case scenario, but kind of what are the most probable, most likely risks that you think that we will be facing in the coming, you know, months and, and even years after that withdrawal? Well, I think, first of all, I'm concerned about the wherewithal of the Afghan security forces and the stability of the, the state itself. Uh, we know that U.S. air support in particular has been very important 
for keeping the Taliban from taking over key provincial capitals. Uh, and we know that the Taliban has been amassing around these provincial capitals. And so my fear is when you know the last of the US forces are gone, that it would be just a matter of time before the Taliban begins to, to take over more and more parts of the country. And you know, as Rector Mogherini pointed out, continued financial support for the Afghan security forces is important, but I, I don't know if that will be enough uh, because I think there was a reliance on our air support in particular and our ability to, to partner directly with the Afghan security forces. So by all means, I think we do need to uh, continue that financial support, but it may it may not be enough. And if we start to see the Afghan security forces splinter, you know, desertions as the pressure from the Taliban increases, then you know, as Rector Mogherini pointed out, you know, where is that assistant going? How is it being managed? Because it will be much more difficult to monitor that assistance when we're not actually there on the ground. Of course, you know, hopefully there'll be an embassy and somebody out of the embassy would be trying to manage that. But that, you know, it's going to be much, much more difficult. And so my concern is that the Taliban makes increasing gains, eventually is able to, to topple the current government. And then we, we have a situation where international terrorists will be accommodated, they will be provided safe haven, because despite the Doha agreement, we have not seen the Taliban break its ties with Al-Qaeda. And you know, so even though they may be down and out now because of that pressure that the US forces have been putting on them in cooperation with the Afghan security forces, once that pressure is relieved, um, there's nothing really stopping that international terrorist threat from re-emerging. And so that that is my core concern and why I think that we really do need a plan B. Uh, because just because the U.S. is ending its involvement in the war doesn't mean that terrorist threat has gone away. And in fact, it's it's likely to increase. And so I think the U.S. working, you know, perhaps in, in consultation with our European and NATO allies uh, needs to figure out um, how we continue to, to protect our core counterterrorism interests. That's a, a, a grim, a grim picture. Certainly, uh, you know, a lot of challenges lie ahead. Before we get to what that Plan B looks like, and we can build on what Rector Mogherini said, but one. I don't know to what extent this was a, a, a discussion, Lisa, um, that you were having in the White House previously, but one kind of theory that had been floated around before is that, you know, if Afghanistan is no longer um, a vital interest for the United States and we need to shift attention to other places, if we downsized or even withdrew that other actors, and it was often Russia, China, India, some of these other regional actors may be willing to step in and to fill some of these gaps. To what extent do you think that's true? I mean, should we expect that perhaps the Kremlin, China, um, some of these other countries may be willing to do more to uphold stability in Afghanistan once we're gone? Well, I think certainly uh, countries like China and Russia uh, are going to be very concerned about the future of Afghanistan. They have their own counterterrorism concerns. And so they are probably right now figuring out uh, how they will cope with a situation in which, you know, the Taliban uh, is rising and, and 
uh, facilitating, you know, terrorists in the country. So we could see uh, more efforts by both of these countries uh, to try to staunch the flow. But, you know, how, what form that takes is unclear. Do they cooperate more closely with the Central Asian countries to sort of control the borders so that um, the problems aren't spilling over into Central Asia then, um, or Ch China even for that matter. Uh, that's a, a possibility. Um, so I think, you know, we, we've yet to see how China and Russia w might change their strategies. And, you know, the U.S. negotiator has been working very closely with China and Russia to try to develop a consensus view on the future of Afghanistan. Um, so we, we do have that possibility, um, but it's certainly, you know, uh, not going to be the same as having, you know, a U.S. and NATO forces. Let's not forget that there are more NATO forces in Afghanistan right now than U.S. forces. Um, you know, some eight, 9,000 forces. And so, you know, there's nothing that can really replace that bulwark um, against uh, the Taliban rising to power and taking over the country. So I, th I think that we will see the, you know, a kind of new great game with countries like China and Russia trying to intervene to protect their own interests. Uh, but it's not likely to be, um, it's likely to be very messy for a long time to come. I have a question for you, Director Magdalene, but um, uh, do you have any comment on what uh, Lisa just said about the regional actors? How does it look from where you are? And then I have a question. Yes, I think uh, uh, what Lisa says is very likely to happen. I think neither Russia nor China have uh, an interest in destabilized uh, Afghanistan, and they will have to fill in somehow the vacuum that will be created on a security, purely security side. Obviously, uh, they will then uh, uh, use it uh, in terms of uh, uh, geopolitical um, um, status and, uh, and influence with the narrative that they tend to use, especially Russia more than China, uh, whenever a Western power uh, leaves a space open and, and, and they contribute to avoiding the worst from happening, provided that they would do it and they would manage to do it, then they would obviously build on the narrative that you see, you cannot really rely on the West, it's us solving the problems. And I think this might be uh, at a certain moment quite complicated to handle. I think that they will, um, the, I think that the Central Asian countries are very much aware that their own interest is different than the Russian and the Chinese one. Uh, I think they would more likely be liaising with uh, Europeans or, or uh, others um, because they, uh, first of all, they're neighbors um, um, differently than others. China have a, has a very small border with, with Afghanistan, but Central Asian countries are really neighbors and family, uh, cross-border uh, ethnic groups, and uh, um, they cannot really afford Afghanistan to uh, to collapse. Uh, and so I think that they are they're very much aware of the fact that they cannot play games with that, and that their long-term interest coincides with a short-term interest in this case. Well, for Russia and China, it might be a little different. different. And then let's not forget another two important uh, neighbors of, of Afghanistan, very different one from the other. But obviously, Pakistan is going to, to be a crucial, crucial player here. And here, I think that, again, Europeans might have uh, access and, and leverage on, uh, on, uh, on Pakistan uh, and, and Iran. 
you know, Iran has been so far um, doing not particularly no particular damage or, or harm in, in, in Afghanistan. It's been quite quiet and even constructive at times. Um, I think it will a lot depend on how things will go in the Middle East and on the Iran nuclear deal and on the Gulf, whether Iran at a certain moment and the Iranian elections in June, whether Iran at a certain moment decides to become a spoiler in Afghanistan. Well, uh, God forbid, that would be quite a worrying uh, development, which is not something I predict to happen right now, but you should not exclude it. And here again, I think Europeans have a role to play in, uh, uh, in helping a political um, track uh, to be developed seriously with the regional uh, players, with the regional countries. And I think that as we focus on, on an order, orderly withdrawal of troops, in terms also of substituting somehow to the extent it is possible, um, the, the presence of troops with support to the security forces and the presence on the ground with other kinds of support and projects. But I think that's the key element here will be to uh, have a, a common strategy on, on the peace talks and the political negotiations, because that is the real risk, that that stops completely, that that relates completely. And then, uh, and then we have no political track on going anymore. Uh, and that would really be, uh, I think, something, uh, something uh, serious and, and, and scary. And I think here there is one immediate step that needs to be taken, or rather not uh, taken, and that is the delisting of the Taliban from the terrorist lists. I think this is uh, uh, what is still uh, in, in the hands of uh, uh, Europeans and Americans alike. Um, I think the Taliban are very much eager uh, to see uh, their organization delisted. Uh, and I think that this is something that we still, we, it's one of the last leverages we can use apart from Pakistan and, and other few things uh, for, for having them seriously engaging in a political process. Can I just jump in here? Um, because I think Rector Mogherini has raised an important point. And that is um, any remaining leverage that the U.S. and Europe might have with the Taliban. But that leverage is only going to be effective if we work very closely together. And I think one of the um, shortcomings of the U.S. approach to the peace talks over the last two years has been a negligence in coordinating closely with our European partners. Um, and that's really um, unfortunate because we actually increase our leverage. Uh, the Europeans provide a great deal of assistance to the Afghan government. Uh, and of course, you know, had troops uh, in Afghanistan as well. So I think we, we bolster our leverage vis-a-vis -vis the Taliban and the Afghan government if we work hand in hand with Europe. And this should be done with regard to leverage over the Taliban, trying to moderate their behavior, trying to encourage them to um, not ban girls from going to school, not target women who have been working with the U.S. I think that's one of the greatest fears that is the Taliban takeover areas, that they will target women who have uh, been working uh, for human rights, working in NGOs. So I think the U.S. and Europe need to really join forces to try to preserve as much um, human rights uh, that have been the progress that's been made over the last 20 years. And we're only going to be able to do that if we work hand in hand. The second point is on Pakistan. Um, people haven't talked about the blowback effect on Pakistan. If you have an emboldened Taliban uh, that is, you know, uh, taking greater control in Afghanistan, that's going to have an impact on terrorist groups 
throughout the region, and particularly those that operate against the Pakistani state. And here I'm talking about Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, the TTP, which had uh, made enormous gains in Pakistan going back to 20, uh, 2009, 2010. It would be uh, a disaster if the TTP were to gain in strength, if they were to be emboldened by the Afghan Taliban's success in Afghanistan. So I think that's something we need to be very mindful of. And uh, because here, you know, with Pakistan, we're talking about a nuclear weapons state, um, you know, very dangerous implications of extremists gaining ground in that country. When I get back I mean, now, if I can underline how important this is uh, of uh, acting together and coordinating actions uh, across the Atlantic, I think indeed, uh, as Lisa said, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. In this last couple of years, uh, uh, we have suffered from a lack of uh, coordinated approach. Uh, uh, somehow we, we, we catched up, uh, we made it coordinated uh, afterwards somehow, uh, but uh, uh, indeed we need to sit down together and, and define the strategy. And for instance, uh, we could have leverage there uh, in, in fields that are not purely military or security related. For instance, Europe normally has a conditionality on, on aid uh, related to human rights respect and uh, certain rules on uh, who uh, channels this aid and uh, what kind of values and parameters are respected for projects on the ground. This is something that definitely can be done together. And if it's done together, it's much more effective. It's a multiplier, actually, of effectiveness that I think we should definitely use. And also on the political process, I insist on that. I think that uh, if the US and Europe uh, and also potentially some European, some, some Asian countries um, uh, join forces on what kind of, uh, uh, of path we envisage to support the Afghan, inter-Afghan negotiations at the stage, uh, we can definitely make a difference there. And also maybe uh, using a little bit more the UN framework uh, in, uh, in a multilateral approach. Yeah, so we're kind of sketching out some contours, maybe moving towards what your plan B is, Lisa, and underscoring really the importance of very close coordination between the United States and Europe on formulating and moving that plan B forward. You know, one of the things that people seem to talk a lot about is the importance that the United States and Europe continue to send money to Kabul. But as you noted, Lisa, that that in and of itself is unlikely to be enough. So could you kind of sketch out maybe some of the ideas that you have in mind of what might constitute at least part of the plan B? What are some of the other things that you envision the United States doing um, and, and you know, highlighting where you know, we might amplify our efforts when we do it along with Europe? Well, I think, you know, first we, we need to recognize that since the US is withdrawing all its forces, uh, it's it's losing that leverage with the Taliban. And the Taliban are less likely to engage in a, a genuine peace process with the Afghans if they feel they can um, win the fight. So I think it's, it's very important, uh, as we said, to try to motivate the Taliban in other ways. Uh, through, you know, the prospect of financial assistance, through the prospect of delistings. So we should certainly follow that track and, and pursue that vigorously, but also, you know, recognize that, you know, we, we can't keep forcing Kabul to make concessions to the Taliban because they're already the weaker party. 
now. So it doesn't really make sense to keep forcing the Afghan government to make concessions. Uh, so we may have to, to um, ease back on the idea of, of a peace settlement right now, because any kind of peace settlement that we would force the Afghan government into is likely to um, sacrifice their legitimacy and actually make it easier for the Taliban to take over. So I think we should shift our focus rather than trying to force a peace settlement is you know motivating the Taliban to moderate their behavior and to um, accept that the country has made a lot of changes in the last 20 years and that that, you know, they should not want to be the kind of pariahs that they were in the 1990s. Um, so that's the diplomatic shift. Now, in terms of uh, addressing our counterterrorism interests, I think we do have to think about offshoring uh, U.S. forces uh, close by. Um, maybe that's in a country like Uzbekistan, where we have really improved our relations over the last few years. Of course, there's a history there of them closing down Karshi Khanabad uh, K2 in 2005 after the Andijan uprising. Uh, so there is a history there, but I would point to more recent positive relations with President Mirziyoyev's regime for the possibility that we could base some forces um, and be able to you know, fly drones for surveillance and to just be close to the, the front so that if um, there is a counterterrorism uh, threat that we can address it quickly um, with, with a force there. So that, you know, it's sort of, we have to pursue these two tracks. One is, you know, trying to pursue a diplomatic political track in close coordination with the Europeans to try to moderate the Taliban and its behavior, but at the same time, being very realistic about the counterterrorism threats that are likely to continue in the country. Sorry, um, could you want to add anything onto that? Or, or yes. I know Jim, Jim always saves um, for our more distinguished guests one kind of reflective question for the end that I know he's going to want to ask, but I don't know if you want to comment on anything. Yeah, Lisa says yes, yes. Uh, because what Lisa says is very interesting. I have, um, uh, I think personally that uh, this diplomatic shift is very much needed at this stage. Uh, personally, I, I thought it was needed also before because I've had several conversations with, uh, with President Ghani and, and the government forces in, in Kabul that were really feeling frustrated about uh, being pushed uh, and, uh, and not being even represented at the table uh, and, uh, and complaining about an over-recognition of the Taliban from the US side in the past. So I think that definitely now uh, with the withdrawal of troops, we have at least to empower the government as much as we can uh, to enter into a proper negotiation that is Afghan-owned and, and led possibly. Uh, but also, I think that there is one element, well, there is one element of pressure, of leverage uh, towards the Taliban that we can use. And I mentioned the delisting issue. We can try to use the leverage we have on those that have leverage, like Pakistan or others. But I think there is another element we've not been exploring enough so far, and maybe this is the right time to do it. And that is a typical European approach uh, that is the positive incentive. Uh, trying to, to uh, bring uh, to the table uh, and, and to the reflection of the, of the Taliban, which to my knowledge might not be the most open-minded ones to consider of moderating their attitudes for the sake of it, uh, of what they can gain out of uh, a process that can try to, uh, to, 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 to find a political solution to, to this situation, uh, trying to incentivize their participation to the institutions of the country. Um, the European Union has some instruments that can put at the disposal of this kind of process. 
because we have been working on, on reconciliation post-conflict and, and even incentives to, to terrorist groups and organizations. I think of the FARC, I think of process in Ireland, I think of uh, so many transitions we've had even inside Europe on how to, 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 to bring back to the institutional life components of society that we're fighting against that. So maybe we can also try to work on, on, on some elements of positive incentives that might highlight what interest the, the, the Taliban might have uh, in participating into the institutions of the country together with others. Uh, I, I wouldn't be too optimistic about that, but maybe this is a way we have not explored enough yet. Well, thank you for that. I, 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 I'm heartened by both what you and, um, and Lisa said. Uh, I, you know, as far as a plan B, I think there, there can be a plan B. There can be some leverage, positive and negative. And, um, and, and maybe we can get back into Uzbekistan as well. And I, I think this is something I'm hoping that the Biden administration is trying to put together um, because I, th there is a, I think there is an approach. And I really appreciate what was just said by both of you. So we're almost out of time. And um, Rector, I wanted to, uh, I, I actually, I've wanted to ask you this question for a long time and I'm just amazed I get this no. opportunity. So, you know, um, you, you've you just finished up a, a really big job at a very important uh, part in the life of the European Union. When you were announced, um, you, had a, you had a great task on your plate bureaucratically, uh, as well as dealing with, um, not just building something, but dealing with all of the outside shocks that come to the EU that you have to wrestle with. And you had a lot of difficult personalities to deal with. Um, and you've done, you did it for a long time. Uh, and now you've, you've, you've emerged from the other side and you're now sitting at a university and you've got time to reflect. And I just was curious, what, what, what did you emerge with in terms of surprises that you didn't think you would see or something that you, uh, um, that you learned that you didn't think that uh, that you with going into the job that you thought you knew and then you go through it all you come out and you've gotten some insight into the EU you've gotten some insight into working foreign policy problems like this um, what did you emerge with and when you sit down you think about the last few years what did what did what would you what would you advise yourself a few years ago as you were going into that job? What, what advice would you have given yourself based on what you know now? Wow, what a question. Uh, I have to tell you, uh, I found out uh, now as a rector that uh, you don't have really much time to reflect if you have to manage a college with the students in campus and the COVID and, uh, right. and, and all of that. So it's actually still a lot of crisis management on a daily basis. So I guess the time for reflection will come with pension for me, uh, which is quite far away still. But uh, no, there is one thing. Um, I was... I was facing many challenges and mainly I was facing a shift in, 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 uh, in paradigm in, in world affairs uh, because I started in 2014 and, and finished uh, in, in 2019, end of 2019. So I've seen the shift from still functioning multilateralism sort of uh, to a different kind of world power games. Uh, I think what I found out, uh, I, I might surprise you, uh, is actually that the European Union, even if we always complain, especially as Europeans, that it's slow, that it doesn't take decisions, that it, you know, it struggles all the time internally, but it's actually very much capable of taking decisions and making the difference when it really wants to do it, when there is a strong political will. I've seen still the 28, because as, as Andrea mentioned, I was still having 28 member states, and still after the Brexit referendum, they were staying inside and we were taking decisions unanimously, so you can imagine 
and, and I have Boris Johnson as a foreign minister. So it was indeed a, an interesting time. But still, um, we, we did manage to take consensual decisions that made a difference. Uh, the way in which we managed to safeguard what remains of the GCPOA, for instance, allowing now the Biden um, administration to take it over and, and see if they can redo something with that. The way in which we uh, managed to literally save some situations in, in, in the UN system, the way in which we managed to put together the supports, the biggest package for supports uh, for Ukraine uh, ever uh, deployed by any uh, European uh, Union mission ever. The way in which we decided over one month only to deploy a military mission in the Mediterranean in 2015. So when when Europe decide when Europe has the political will to act, it can act very fast, united, and effectively. Um, and, and this is something that goes against the the the, 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 the public uh, uh, usual um, understanding of how complicated the European Union is, because it's indeed complicated. But what being complicated is also somehow a guarantee of, um, of predictability. It, it might take long to get to a decision, but then you stick to it, uh, which in these times is not a bad thing. You know, that's interesting. Your, your insight is what I took away from my time working at NATO as well. And for me, 2014, you know, after the Russians went into Crimea, NATO moved pretty fast, including deploying forces. And uh, you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. When when you Once you get unity, <laughs> you know, you, you can march, but it's getting there. Yeah. That's, that's and you get unity when you have the strong political will. And it's not about uh, institutional matters. It's not institutional setup that makes you slow. If it's slow, it's because member states decide that it's convenient for them to make it yeah. slow, yeah. Uh, which is the same at national level, at domestic level. If you don't want to go fast, you don't go fast, even if you're one country with a presidential right. system. I mean, it's, uh, it's all about politics at the end of the day. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think you and you see that too from this administration. I mean, putting Europe really at the center of U.S. foreign policy. Just how important that steady predictability, taking important decisions when they need to be made. I mean, and and I, you know, it maybe we've all been so anxious. You know, then I know none of us expected that it would snap back, but maybe it's a little even a little bit more difficult than we anticipated. We see it clearly from Europe. We see. Uh, I mean, in, in a few months, uh, Biden has participated to the European Council already, virtually, obviously, but this is COVID time. Uh, Blinken has participated several times to, uh, to meetings with the, uh, with the ministers and with Borrell. The first visit of the president is confirmed to be in Brussels, first for the G7 and then uh, Brussels, NATO and EU. So the symbolism is there and the policy is there. So. Um, and it's just a few months. So give us, let's give ourselves time to rebuild this strong transatlantic bond. And I'm sure this, this will really be beneficial to both of us, but also to the rest of the world in very difficult times. We all need it. Yeah. What an optimistic note to end on. I fully agree. Um, and uh, I love when we are able to end on a high note like that. So um, thank you both. Um, Rector Mogherini, thank you, Lisa, for joining. Um, and I don't know, maybe we'll check in again, you know, as it, the time gets closer or in the months after drawdown to see where we are. But this was just such a wonderful, wonderfully rich conversation that helps us all understand, you know, not just what's happening in Afghanistan, but how the transatlantic partners can, can be thinking about it together um, and, and mapping out a framework. So thank you, uh, both of you.